Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. As I'm sure you can hear, I'm still yet to completely recover from my illness, but we're going to forge ahead anyway. This week, we're headed through the state of Wisconsin, and it just so happens we have an appointment with a doctor. More than gravediggers, undertakers, mad scientists, or even clowns, there really aren't many professions that hold the same capacity to terrify as doctors. Seriously, think about it. Doctors are there when you're at your most vulnerable, whether you're sick or even downright unconscious. They have the knowledge and, usually, permission to manipulate our very bodies 
in uniquely intimate ways. Ways that, if you're not careful, can really get under your skin. Don't get me wrong, I have an incredible level of respect for the medical community, and I don't want to perpetuate any unfair stereotypes. But if there was anyone outside of a professional assassin that would know how best to kill, disfigure, or creatively reimagine a person, you better believe they'd have an MD or a PhD after their name. Just saying. One terrible horror movie from when I was a kid that still surfaces in my memory every so often was a little flick called Dr. Giggles about an unhinged killer surgeon-slash-escaped mental patient hell-bent on performing heart transplants. Like a lot of slasher horror from those days, it's more campy than creepy, but little 11-year-old me found it pretty scary at the time and it clearly left an impression. Our doctor's visit this week isn't full of puns or cheap special effects, but it does put a decidedly dark spin on the profession. We'll work our way back to Wisconsin shortly, but we're starting our little tale at the end, further south in a place called Little Torch Key, Florida. It was early one spring morning, and Douglas Harrison was going about his usual routine. Shower, get dressed, eat some breakfast, and take out the garbage. As he wheeled his cart to the curb, he spotted his elderly neighbor, Glenn Tucker, doing the same. Tucker was a quiet, private man at the best of times, but that morning, he completely ignored Doug's attempts to make small talk. Tucker had been struggling since a stroke left his wife paralyzed and in a wheelchair, Doug knew, so he didn't push the conversation. He went back to the house to finish getting ready for work. That's when he heard the bang. Loud, sharp, and percussive, one after another after another. Gunshots. Doug called the police and when they arrived and searched the home, they found Tucker's wife, Joan, sprawled in her wheelchair dead. And upstairs, they discovered Glenn Tucker, too, face down in a pool of crimson, the lifeless body of their cat Luther cradled in one arm and a gun in the other. After a brief investigation, The story seemed fairly clear. A depressed older man who felt he didn't have much left to live for murders his wife, Cat, and then takes his own life. Heartbreaking, tragic, but sadly not entirely unheard of. The case was closed and investigators moved on, never really knowing they'd barely scratched the surface of the darkness that lurked below. Back in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he was from, people had a much different view of Glenn Tucker. He'd built quite a reputation. He was a plastic surgeon, and a highly respected and skilled one, too. That is, until the malpractice suits began to pile up. It started with six, and grew to include twice as many. Claims that exceeded any mere incompetence. Stories that Tucker had mutilated and disfigured his patients, purposefully, with cold intent. I'll warn you now, children of the night, some of this gets pretty gruesome, so if you've got a weak stomach, you might want to skip ahead. Jan Lehman 
had been sent to Tucker with a broken nose after attempting, and failing, a cartwheel. It was painful, but didn't seem like that huge of a deal. She was pleased, though, that Tucker acted quickly. He administered painkillers and prepped her for surgery, and she assumed it was a fairly routine procedure. Just a simple day surgery, then home to rest. But when she awoke the next day, the pain seemed unreasonably extreme, shooting like electricity through her sinus cavity, and both of her eyes were blackened and swollen, as though she'd lost a fistfight. For two months, she tried to remain patient, did everything she was told, regularly followed up with the doctor, and tried to give it time to heal. But with little improvement, Dr. Tucker eventually suggested a second surgery. She was hesitant, but agreed. Something somehow felt off. A broken nose shouldn't be this complicated, should it? The second procedure only increased her sense of unease. During her visit, the clinic was eerily silent, and at one point she briefly awoke from anesthetic while being wheeled alone into an empty operating theater by Tucker, then promptly wheeled back out into a different one when they encountered a suspicious janitor. When she awoke again, the procedure was complete. Dr. Tucker was in the process of cleaning up, removing gauze and cleaning the area around the wound. Before she could register, he leaned over, wrapped the surgical tube still dangling from her nose around his fingers, and yanked, tearing the tube in several stitches free, his face cold and impassive as she screamed. Again, months passed, and she didn't improve. But it wasn't until Tucker boldly told her that the reason she wasn't improving was that she simply didn't want to get better, that she finally sought a second opinion. Her new doctor was quick to discover a reason for much of her pain, too. A huge wad of gauze that Tucker had left to fester in her sinus. There was a long road ahead to recover from the raging infection, but at least she wouldn't have to see Dr. Tucker again. Until she spotted him while out shopping one day. And then, she was sure she caught him watching her from a parked car. And then from the middle of a crowded street. These incidents began happening with increasing frequency that made coincidence all but impossible. And it made her start to fear for her life. Enough so that she packed up and moved away from the city not long after, before filing her claim against him. Then there's Mary, another of Tucker's patients, who had received a breast augmentation from the doctor. After her implants became infected and left her in excruciating pain, she agreed to undergo two more surgeries. But by the second, she was afraid enough that she left a note outlining everything that had happened to her at the hands of Dr. Tucker, in case she didn't make it out alive. The scarring from the surgeries was terrible, she said. The haphazard sutures around her breasts looked more like football lacing than a delicate surgeon's stitch. But the experience itself was more horrifying still. At one point, without warning or anesthetic, Tucker had pierced her breast 
with a huge needle. No explanation, no seeming reason. In another incident, she claimed Tucker dug his fingers into an incision and pulled part of an implant out without administering any anesthetic, his face eerily blank and emotionless. The nurses, unable to sit idly by while she screamed in pain, attempted to intervene, but Tucker paid them no attention. Other cases came forward as well, including a man who sought help for spasms in his arm, but later had to have it amputated entirely as a result of Tucker's procedures. Another woman required more than a dozen corrective procedures to fix the hack job he'd done to remove her excess skin after weight loss. Even with six cases against him, it wasn't guaranteed to be enough to take Tucker down. Malpractice suits, at the time anyway, had a habit of being either ignored or outright thrown out in court. But the court did find him guilty, and he was ordered to pay a settlement. Not long after, Tucker left for a fishing trip, no doubt to clear his mind from all the court proceedings and bad press swirling around him. But when he failed to return home, his wife began to worry. She called police, and when they searched the area, they found Tucker's flipped-over canoe and a jacket washed up on shore, but no sign of the doctor himself. No body and no signs of foul play. Authorities were understandably suspicious that he'd attempted to fake his own death, but with no actual crime committed, he was simply reported as missing. Well, we know now he managed to escape Wisconsin free of the mounting lawsuits, debts, and evil reputation, Dr. Glenn Tucker sure left plenty of damage behind. Some very deep scars. Now, what say we carve up some stories of our own? Our first story for the evening comes from A. Elizabeth Herding. A. Elizabeth Herding is an aspiring freelance writer and busy mother of three living in colorful Colorado. She has had over 60 short stories published and also has two collections of short stories that will be published by Adelaide Books, Whistling Past the Veil in April 2019 and Postcards from Wapaka, which comes out in February 2020. Children of the Night, join me for A. Elizabeth Herding's Croutons and Handcuffs, a Tales to Terrify original. Croutons. She stopped for one stupid bag of croutons, and all hell broke loose. They weren't even the good kind. The kind with cheesy garlic goodness. Just some cheap cardboard imposter sold in the drugstore for $1.99 on sale. Not even on par with the latest gourmet, truffle-oiled, spicy tortilla chips everyone buried their salads in these days. Completely ordinary and awful in every way. This pathetic bag of stale bread was going to cost her dearly. It would be at least $200, maybe more, and God only knows what the insurance hike would look like. 
And now she was also late. Shit. The police officer seemed impossibly young as Moira watched him in her rearview mirror, not a single beard hair in sight. Carefully reapplying her lipstick, she wondered if she still had enough oomph to earnestly attempt her way out of this ticket, quickly decided it wasn't worth the effort. The lipstick was an emergency purchase as well, cheap and fast, not nearly the right shade to charm this particular boy wonder, even if she wasn't so firmly ensconced in the dreaded badlands of middle age. At 52, with no relief in sight, Moira Hargraves was convinced she was still a desirable woman, although a thoroughly pissed-off one at the moment. No, the cold hard fact was that seduction would not work with this guy. She just knew it. Moira would need to work a different angle. She cursed her luck, damning her stubborn boss who forced her, once again, to go to the annual company picnic. Her department was in charge of the salads for the third year running. If there was anything more disgusting than Harold, from purchasing, sticking his German-crusted fingers into the various salad bar ingredients, Moira couldn't think of what it could possibly be. So, she'd forgotten the damn croutons. Why was that such a crime? Did the mere fact that there were more than two people in the drug co-line and the most horrifically slow checker in all of recorded history mean that she should be punished in this way? A speeding ticket from a cop who probably still had his old Teletubbies videos queued up on an ancient VCR in his mother's basement? He stood just outside of his squad car with the spastic lights illuminating his baby face, checking and rechecking her information on a tiny screen. Moira watched as he shifted uncomfortably from side to side, delving into her stats. She knew her record was as pure as the driven snow, save for a handful of tickets when she was younger. Not exactly high crimes and misdemeanors. Yet he lingered on, and on. There really was no reason for him to stare at the screen like a gape-jawed jackal, picking over the relevant facts of her life. It was completely uncalled for. Moira sat still and counted to ten. Another torturous twenty minutes went by as the junior officer finally extricated himself from the side of the cruiser and sauntered over to her window. Ma'am, do you know how fast you were going? The hated ma'am's salutation. Next, he would probably compare her to his mother. Why, no, officer. I was running late for an appointment. Should have paid closer attention. I am dreadfully sorry. Well... You were doing 37 in a 25, but today is your lucky day. I just need you to step out of the vehicle for a moment and you can be on your way. Moira nervously eyed the handcuffs attached to his hip, relieved that there was to be no ticket, but instantly on guard at his request. I hope you won't think I'm arguing with you, officer, but could you please explain to me why I must get out? There's something I think you should see. It could be a safety issue. Would you mind opening your trunk for me, please? Moira sighed and resigned herself to the fact that her boss would be forced to eat a naked salad while she shot the breeze with the youngest police officer in the state, croutons wilting even further in the sweltering July sun. My promotion could be at stake if this takes much longer. I need to get going. Moira reluctantly opened her door and stood up. The officer politely held it open for her before following her around back to the trunk. He was clearly raised with some manners, she was pleased to see. 
A feeling of pure dread stopped her dead in her tracks as they approached the rear of the car together. A garish, brightly colored, dogs-playing-poker-themed tie was sticking out of the bottom of her trunk. On closer inspection, it appeared to be covered with blood and dried bits of gore that flaked off as the young officer ran it through his shaking fingers. She felt a sudden, deadly change in their dynamic, a shift in his demeanor as he slowly stood up, removing his handcuffs and addressing her in an overly formal tone. Ma'am, please open the trunk, then place your hands on the top of the vehicle in front of you, where I can see them. There's that bloody ma'am again. I may as well be relegated to the old folks' home. At this point, she knew there was no use in arguing with him. It was too late for that. Moira dramatically sighed one last time and pulled the trunk halfway open. The smell instantly assaulted them, putrid and hot, stinking death baking in the summer heat. Moira heard his shocked intake of breath as he reached for his sidearm. She felt a twinge of regret at what she would have to do. Moira wasn't in the habit of killing childlike authority figures, after all. But really, he'd left her no choice. In a well-practiced motion, she swiftly pulled the revolver from the darkness of the trunk and cleanly shot him right between the eyes. The handcuffs fell as he followed them down, dead before he even hit the ground. Moira didn't usually kill those she knew. The old adage about not defecating where you ate was a tried-and-true philosophy. There was an unending supply of society's forgotten members to choose from in a pinch, invisible folks who disappeared very easily. Howard, however, needed killing. Badly. It was a long time coming. That awful tie he was planning to debut at the company picnic was the very last straw. It was simple, really, to get him alone under romantic pretenses before delivering the fatal blow, like shooting fish in a barrel, or assholes in a salad bar, whichever came first. Her daddy always taught her to aim true, and she sure had, every single time. It was ridiculously easy. Baby Cop was well and truly dead. It would be a shame for his family, and honestly, it wasn't a satisfying kill for her, but desperate times call for desperate measures. She removed another tarp from the trunk, wrapping Officer Friendly up like a prepubescent burrito, and hoisted him in. Moira was no wilting violet. She made sure to get crossfit at least three times a week, with Pilates every other Saturday. Luckily, she'd brought the vehicle with the deepest trunk, so he and Harold fit in quite nicely together. A real bromance for the afterlife. You're welcome, boys. Damn it. Another broken nail. She really was due for a new manicure. Maybe she'd unload these guys into her favorite lake depository after the hideous barbecue and get a mani-pedi first thing in the morning to celebrate. Making sure her gruesome task went unobserved, Moira slowly backed the cruiser up behind the Piggly Wiggly billboard so it would look like a speed trap. Luckily, he had clocked her on a fairly quiet side street. Eventually, they would figure out he was missing, but she would be long gone by then. If she hurried now, she could just make it before the damned croutons were scorched beyond all recognition. She desperately needed one of her boss's extra-strength mojitos after this. It really was hotter than the blazes out here. Satisfied that everything was in order, she scooped up his handcuffs and slid them in her pocket. She would add it to her collection. It was always nice to keep a souvenir for memories. 
The cuffs and Harold's poker-playing dog tie should do quite nicely. Pretty soon, she would need a new room to store her keepsakes. It was beginning to get crowded. It was her final pleasant thought as she hopped back in the car and cranked up the A.C. She wondered if anyone would miss Harold at the company picnic, quickly decided against it. Besides, if anyone had been subjected to that god-awful tie wrapped around his corpulent neck, Moira was absolutely sure they would have given her a medal for a job well done. Moira pulled out, careful not to speed and risk another incident. She might be able to fit three bodies back there, but that was pushing it. A girl had to have standards, after all, even girls of a certain age. She could feel the sweat cascading down between her collarbones, the adrenaline of a fresh kill always making her feel youthful and optimistic. As meticulous as she always prided herself to be, Moira Hargraves was slipping. She could be forgiven, perhaps, for the lapse. She had, after all, come of age in the final generation before the world went haywire with life-consuming technology. Smartphones, the internet, and live streaming were still foreign to her, having grown up in an era where payphones were common and one did not go about recording every aspect of their lives at every moment of every day. Officer Friendly was of a different generation. His discreetly mounted phone went about its work on the dash, recording the entire episode for posterity on a live feed back to the station without Moira giving it so much as a glance. It was a habit for him, a precaution, if you will, against the many hazards of his chosen occupation. As the highway erupted in a blaze of sirens and pandemonium, Moira Hargraves was never to know that her own middle age had done her in, only that it looked as though she would be spared the unpleasantness of the atrociously stale croutons after all. As she slammed the gas pedal down and placed her revolver gently upon her lap, Moira thought that simple fact alone was almost worth the cost. She decided to take her chances, never one to give up without a fight. Harold, officer-friendly, and that hideous tie deserved no less. Moira knew that no matter what did happen from this point on, she was fairly confident that no one would ever call her ma'am again. Thank sweet, merciful God. Armored with a final touch-up of lipstick, Moira turned up her favorite classic rock station to full volume and prepared to ride off into glory. Croutons be damned. That was A. Elizabeth Herding's Croutons and Handcuffs, as read by Corinne Bachot. Corinne is a non-binary actor, herbalist, and witch living in the Los Angeles area with their two cats. When they're not acting, into a microphone or otherwise, one can usually find them foraging for medicine or creating herbal skincare over at Sugar Black Rose Apothecary, or just trying and failing to be witty to anyone who will listen. Thank you, Corinne. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? 
needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second story comes from Christine Lucas. Christine Lucas lives in Greece with her husband and a horde of spoiled animals. A retired Air Force officer and mostly self-taught in English, she's had her work appear in several print and online magazines, including Daily Science Fiction, Pseudopod slash Artemis Rising 4, and Nature Futures. She was a finalist for the 2017 WSFA Award and is currently working on her first novel. Listen with me, children of the night, to Christine Lucas's The Drowned Man's Kiss, originally published on Pseudopod March 2018. It starts with a murmur, a prayer, slithering through a sleeping shipmate's lips. Or perhaps a confession, or a memory caught in the fog of the ghostly hours before dawn. It lingers little down here, in the stale air heavy with the stench of urine and unwashed bodies. Soon it rises higher, amidst the sails and the riggings, hungry for fresh air. Then comes the scratching against the ship's hull. Grip by grip, claw-like hands dig into the wood, dragging upwards God knows what. I lay still on my hammock, squeezing my eyes shut. I don't dare to steal a peek at the narrow stair leading upwards to the main deck, but I hear a slow drip of water, stagnant black water mixed with putrid drool, and I gag at the stench. Once, when I was a young fool, I did dare a glimpse. Never again. I've seen enough of the corpse sprawled across the upper steps, its torso reaching downwards, the rest out of sight. Grey, bloated flesh bathed in the milky light of early dawn. Bone grinds on bone as he turns to seek me out amidst the slumbering sailors. One eye dangles on its decaying cheek, the other socket a dark nest for crabs. Gnarled hands, their flesh stripped off by water and fish, dig into the wood. First they drag the corpse forward, step by step. Then they dig into the lower deck's planks and slouch closer, an arm's reach each time. 
Should I dare a peak, there would be no pelvis, no groin, no legs to see below the drowned man's waist. Only the white-washed remnants of his backbone and long tendrils of muscle, sinew and entrails. Madonna, forgive me. With every slosh, with every pull of those fleshless hands, I pray that he'll turn towards one of the others. He never does. And I lie there, helpless and exposed like a gutted pig. I cannot move. I cannot scream. I cannot die. And I part my lips when his tongue probes my mouth, cold and slimy like a dead minnow. My heart struggles against my ribs. My stomach heaves and I wake up, breathless and bereft of the dead man's embrace. Someone will die today. Mere superstition, Papa Nicholas deemed such beliefs back at home during his Sunday sermons. But common folk know them for omens of certain death, waking up to the drowned man's kiss or to the ship's bell double toll. Illiterate sailors' superstitions across the Aegean Sea. They could be, I guess. But I know such beliefs to be older than Papa Nicholas's Christ, older than the twelve slumbering gods beneath their white marble temples. I cannot, will not, shrug them off. I know few men worthy of respect. Retired sea captains, stony-faced, hard-eyed, every wrinkle a reminder of a conquered storm. And they all revere these omens and the one who sends them forth, the one who still lurks in the deep. The breeze carries below deck the scent of spices and the cries of dock workers. I climb up. Someone will die today. My fists clench. It won't be me. I wash down the dream's aftertaste with gulps of secudia from my flask. Droplets drip on my beard and the strong, bittersweet spirit burns my throat and awakens memories of my small island north of Crete. Memories of home. I miss home. I miss Aisha. Without her, I have no home to return to. The memory of her smile coils like a noose around my throat. I climb the steps to the main deck faster, towards the sunlight. The harbour of Algiers offers plenty of distraction. The loud, colourful crowd clad in jalabas, hooded robes of many styles and sizes. The aromas of cumin and garlic mingles with the stench of animal dung. The docked corsair ships hoist Barbarossa's banner and ragged captives are herded away to the slave markets. Under the rule of the Barbarossa brothers, slave traders flourished across the Barbary coast. Our line of trade is safer, although not as profitable. Hashish and opium, and sometimes mastic gum from Chios. Captain Youssef looks at me with Aisha's eyes, so much like them, and so filled with hatred. Would she look at me the same way now? And does he know? He mustn't. I'm still alive, am I not? But perhaps he suspects. I shan't give him an excuse today, not with the drowned man's kiss still on my lips. So I avoid his gaze and my sin. Again. I hurry to join my shipmates unloading the cargo. With the cargo unloaded and coins in my pouch, I head to town for some decent food and, damned lice, a visit to the baths. Amidst carts and kebab merchant stalls, I elbow my way through the crowd, one hand on my dagger, the other on my pouch. Each step takes me closer to the gathering I'd hoped to avoid. Not the slaves, not the corsairs, not even the fast-fingered urchins. My heart flutters when I near the women waiting at the docks. 
Clad in dark kaftans, some of their heads wrapped in sebnias, some unveiled, they flock away from the ruffle. Their faces light up with every docking ship, looking for those who sailed away. Fathers, husbands, sons. This breed of women knows no country or religion across the Mediterranean. They are brides of the sea, a sisterhood of mourning and waiting, from the mother of the last cabin boy to the wife of the most feared corsair. Ah, Mana, you were one of them once. Long dead now, my poor mother, may the Virgin bless her soul. How long did she wait before giving up when the sea took my father? How long until she dried her eyes with no grave to cry over? How long did Aisha wait for me? Aisha, my love, my sin, the blood upon my hands. Shame has long erased her face from my memory, but not the scent of her hair, cinnamon and spice, and the way her body coiled with mine. Rare, precious, stolen moments of peace, drowned by the thoughtless fool that I was. I blink. Damned sand makes my eyes water. I need shade. There. A door to an off-way shop. I'll be safe there. Alone. Two steps down into the cool interior. And into another world. I half-heartedly browse through the collection of dusty old swords and moth-eaten uniforms of a dozen Mediterranean armies. Byzantine Van Vakia and Saracen's helmets and Crusaders' breastplates. A parrot squeaks somewhere outside. Mixed scents flow into the shop. Coriander and garlic and camel dung. At the darkest corner, behind dusty bookcases, on the highest shelf above a pile of carpets, I spot a wooden box under the protection of the Hamza amulet. Fatima's hand. My hands ignore silks and velvets and move upwards to the box. A blackened hand guides mine, dead blood drawn to shed blood. How did you find this? It's not for sale. A steady, heavily accented voice. The shopkeeper appears from behind a cobweb-covered bookcase, his step noiseless as a cat's, clad in a sand-coloured jalaba, dark-skinned and wrinkled, with small, cunning eyes over a greying beard. Why? I pop the lid open. Amidst a handful of blue Nazar talismans lies a dagger, its blade the length of my palm. I pick it up. Well balanced. Damascene steel? Worn heraldry on the hilt. The outline of an anchor with a fishtail curled around it. A good dagger can come handy. Bad dreams can be just that. Dreams. That bastard Yusef is real flesh and blood. How much? He snatches the box from my hands. Choose something else. I want this one. I point the dagger's tip at him. How much? He raises his arms in defence and his chin in defiance. Not that. It's cursed. Cursed? I cock an eyebrow. The drowned man sighs over my shoulder. Claw-like nails trace my jugular. My skin breaks in goosebumps. I manage a half-grin. You're not getting one dealer more than it's worth. I'm not haggling, you fool! He holds out the open box. Put it back if you value your soul. <laughs> my soul? <laughs> I lost my soul long before I stepped into this hole. I toss a deer lamb to him. No, the curse. Tell me about it. He catches it in midair with surprising speed. His eyes gleam, much like the eyes of the ship's cat stalking the hashish-eating rats. He measures me, from matted hair to bare feet. Fine, Effendi. I'll tell you. Effendi. Sir. 
Such a change in attitude one dear lamb can make. After the sea robbed me of father, ship and future, such crumbs of respect warm my heart. Even coin bought respect. That dagger ended in my shop with a long trail of blood behind it. Not any blood, no. Legend has it that those wielding it will murder those they love most. He nods. Yes, Effendi, it's true. Husbands have killed wives and mistresses, men their brothers and fathers. Oh, then that bastard Yusuf is safe. I stifle a chuckle. And whom have you killed? No one. He meets my stare. I've never handled it, only kept it inside the box where it can do no harm. Nonsense. If it's so dangerous, why didn't you throw it in the sea? His wrinkles deepen, his eyes widen, and the blood leaves his lips in one heartbeat of absolute terror. He sucks in a deep breath. I keep it where I can watch it. I'll never sell it, not for one dirham, not for one thousand. He holds up the box again. Please, choose anything else at half price. The offer is good. I don't care. This is an exquisite blade, and the curse, if indeed there's one, can't affect me. Everyone I've ever loved is already dead. I sure. I blink shame away. I've yearned for few things in my life. The sun on my face, a ship under my feet, a warm meal after a hard day's toil, and her. Family. Life. Old age with her. I can't have her. But I'll have this. I want this. I point it at his neck. How much? He sighs. When he speaks again, his voice is weary. The prophet, peace be upon him, has warned us against murder. I will not sell it to you. I won't have the blood of your victims on my hands. As you wish. I took the dagger in my belt and flee. He doesn't try to stop me. In the shadows of the back alleys of Algiers, my father and grandfathers and all my forefathers, well-respected captains and navigators, turn their backs on me. First a murderer, now a thief. Virgin be blessed, manna. You rest in God's arms now and can no longer see your son's shame. As I flee, every dog in Algiers howls. One of my younger shipmates never returns. He got a blade in the guts during a tavern brawl, I'm told. No, in a brothel, someone claims. The fool tried to pull down a whore's yashmak. But no one can be that stupid. Everyone knows that those veiled whores might show their tits for a dear lamb, but never their faces. He's dead. I'm not. I've survived another visit from the drowned man. Later that night, I hear more whispers from the nearby hammocks. Captain Youssef considers expanding to privateering and the slave trade. I roll over and shrug it off. Neither this ship nor this crew are fit for piracy. Not even Youssef can be this foolish. We're two days off Algiers, heading southeast to Crete. Madonna be blessed, no more bad dreams since we left port. I seek solace in the wind-blown realm of masts and riggings and sails, unless the boatswain orders me elsewhere. My kingdom in the clouds, between the seagull's flights and the dolphin's graceful leaps. There, memories and guilt disintegrate under the sunlight. Sometimes I think I spot the mermaid's tail breaking the surface far off, on horizon's trail. Panagia Gorgona, the Madonna mermaid. With one hand she holds the infant, with the other she wields the storm. It's the sea herself, some old folks say, while others claim that she's a deity older than both the Trinity and the Twelve. 
but all agree, and add in whispers, that a host of drowned sailors follows her trail in the deep. Perhaps my nightly visitor is one of them, the harbinger of her will, delivering her justice to those who fail her. Is my father among her drowned host? Is Aisha? My son? My vision blurs. I seek the comfort of my cursed dagger in my palm. There's no mermaid, no god, no forgiveness. That night, the drowned man returns. Come morning, I'm proven wrong. Yusef is that foolish. Under overcast skies, we're ordered to follow a small Venetian ship. That bastard Yusef will be the death of us all. Most of us come from sun-scorched coastal villages with brittle soil, scrawny goats, and wells rare enough to teach us the value of fresh water. We are no fighters. We're goat herds and fishermen turned sailors and smugglers aboard a ship wrecked enough to attract the least possible attention. Yusef envies Hayruddin Barbarossa's infamy and riches. He won't listen to reason. He doesn't understand that this bark with the much-mended sails isn't a galley. We're not battle-trained seamen, and he's not Barbarossa. My mates mutter and take their time following Yusef's orders. Even the bosun seems disgruntled, his face drawn, his hands in fists. He's an olive-skinned Egyptian of few words. When he speaks, he speaks right. As I climb down from the mainmast, he tries to talk sense into the captain. There are enough thugs loyal to Yusef. Dogs of a kind, packed together. I make my way to the side. I won't have any of them stand behind me. A few feet away, the boatswain attempts to reason with Yusef. What if they carry gunners and bombards? What do we have? Grappling hooks and belaying pins? The men? A slap against the face. Stunned silence. The boatswain takes two steps backwards, wipes his bloody lips, gawks at the captain. Yusef has never hit him before. You have your orders, he barks. Yusef pulls a belaying pin from the nearest bulwark and holds it out, pointing it to each man around him in turn. He spins around until he spots me. He points the pin straight at me. He can crack my skull with a single blow. You, you lazy Greek, always sleeping late, always loitering where you thought I couldn't see you. He wags the pin as if he's wagging a finger to an unruly child. You're bad luck, you. If it hadn't been for my dear late cousins, please, I wouldn't have taken you on board. His voice hardens. But she's dead now, isn't she? A shadow slithers behind his eyes. Aisha's eyes. If he didn't suspect I was involved in Aisha's death, he does now. And he'll kill me for it. Or to scare the others into submission. Or both. I won't waste my breath. I meet his gaze and my sin and keep my right hand on my dagger. My fingers trace the faded heraldry on the hilt. I lick my lips and taste the briny taste of the drowned man's tongue. I bore my fists, balance my weight. Yusef's eyes cut too deep. No, not like this. Not by Yusef's hand. <laughs> Yusef snorts and signals at his thugs. This dog thinks he's a man. Hefting the pin like a club, he charges. Perhaps it's the wind that clouds his vision. Perhaps it's my newfound clarity that steals my arms and guides my move. Perhaps it's those eyes that remind me of the man I once was before this superstitious drunk I've become terrified of bad dreams. 
I sidestep right in time and elbow him in the back hard enough to send him face down on the deck. I manage a kick against his ribs. Something cracks. He curses. Next time, I'll kill you. My voice rings calm. Controlled. It scares me more than any of Yusef's threats. And still thrills me. And I'm drunk by this absolute hopelessness in which all roots stretch open. Even mutiny against a bully, against a curse, against sea and fate. Get him, you dogs! Yusef attempts to get up. I kick him again. He rolls over onto his back. At the edges of my vision, his thugs make their moves. One of them, a huge Turk, is only a few steps away. He wields a grappling hook. A well-balanced punch on the stomach from the bosun, and his grin becomes a growl. He drops the hook, retreats a few steps. His gaze darts between Yusef and the bosun. I cannot tell whom he fears most, his bully of a captain, or the tough, but never cruel, bosun. The rest of Yusef's lackeys aren't more successful. They trip and land face first on the bulwark. They step on carelessly forgotten caltrops or halt their advance at the sight of drawn handfits. Yusef pulls himself up, his face twisted. He hefts the pin and charges again. Before he can manage a blow, I grip his wrist overhead and punch him on the mouth. A cry, shock and shame and rage, and Yusef spits out blood and chipped teeth. I release his wrist and push him back. He stumbles, rosy froth in his mangy beard, and grips a nearby line to keep his balance. Through incoherent curses, he draws his scimitar. I draw my dagger. He chuckles. <laughs> Such a small knife you have there. He spits at me, and blood lands on the blade of Damascene steel. The dagger vibrates. I feel it through my palm, through muscle and sinew, up to my hair that stands, down to my toes that curl. Thirst. Need. A call to arms. A call to kin. Madonna, help me. But it's not the black-clad visage of the Virgin that enters my thoughts. It's a monstrous tale, and she comes bearing the storm. The wind dies down. The sails hang loose. Lightning cracks over still waters. Cool drizzle starts to fall, and dead lips brush against my ear. Behind me, someone murmurs. A prayer? A confession? A forgotten shanty from a ghost ship gliding by? Thin fog rises from the sea. Distant echoes come with the fog and join the murmur. Whispers in tongues we once knew but have long forgotten. Lullabies and limericks and prophecies and warnings. And a name, no, many names for the one who has none. Tiamat, Tethys, Thalata. Yusef raises his scimitar as if to strike, but then lowers it again, his eyes wild. Some men mumble prayers, others spit thrice on the decks to avert evil. Others dare a glance overboard. From somewhere near the prow comes a great splash. Now seawater drizzles over us, and a lad leans over the railing to see. Is it a whale? A dolphin mocking the affairs of men with its grace? You know what it is, do you not? The lad throws his arms in the air and falls onto his knees, his face deathly pale. Panagia Gorgona, he mutters, making the sign of the cross. Madonna mermaid. More men fall on their knees. Faithless thugs and goat herds turn to sailors alike, mumble prayers in half a dozen languages. 
The boatswain remains silent, but holds the Nazar amulet on his chest in a white-knuckled grip. Yusef doesn't pray. Never has. Stop that! No one listens. He takes one step as if to charge me, but pulls back when I raise my dagger. The next one closest to him is the lad who saw the mermaid. He's still on his knees, rocking back and forth, his arms crossed on his chest, reciting a prayer to the Virgin. Before I can stop him, Yusef kicks him hard on the chin, sending him on his back. The boy falls and lays still, breathing but passed out. My vision blurs. How brave of you, such a threat, a praying boy. I move towards him. So does the bosun, picking up the grappling hook Yusef's thug dropped moments ago. Yusef spins to face me, the tip of his scimitar cutting half circles in the air between the bosun and me. Then scratching starts. I feel it first under my bare feet. Then I hear it. Everyone hears it, through every plank and board, from the hull upwards. Scratching, grazing, scraping. Something claws its way up from the deep. Blackened fingers with claw-like nails. A drowned man's hands. Not one now, but legion. The praying stops. One of Yusef's thugs, dark-skinned, thin, his upper lip trembling under his thick moustache. Howls like a madman. His eyes roll around, wild as if he smoked all the hashish in the cargo hold. Flailing his arms, froth on his lips, he jumps overboard. His muttering turns to a high-pitched sound before we hear a splash. It too turns to a gurgle before all sounds stop. No one dares to look overboard. The scratching resumes. The men huddle together like a bundle of trembling chickens in their pens. The boatswain stands his ground, holding the hook high. Yusef waves his blade at everyone and no one, cursing, his sword arm shaking. They are coming for me. For us. Not in dream, but in waking, and I don't know how to stop them. But this is not a dream in which I lie still, in which I cannot move. Now I can see. I can bleed. I can die. And I can think, before the drowned man's lips rob me of breath and life. I glance at my bloodstained dagger. The mere suggestion of throwing it to the sea had filled the old shopkeeper with dread. Why? What does that insignia mean, that fishtail curled around the anchor? To whom does it belong to? Yusef screams and charges me, his scimitar high. Mostly out of reflex, I fall to one knee and plunge the dagger upwards into his gut. I push and turn and push and turn until the scream stops, until the scimitar falls, until his body collapses limp on the deck, the dagger's thirst quenched by the sacrifice. The scratching stops. The fog dissolves. The wind picks up. Amidst nervous whispers and suspicious stares, I remain on my knees, my shoulders slumped, my rage spent. The dagger almost slips my bloody grip. It yearns to return where it belongs. I hold on to it. Not yet. An arm's length away, Yusef's glassy eyes are fixed on me, one final reminder of my sin. He's dead. Whom will I hate now? The wind-blown man, my shipmates call me. They call me other things, too, but I choose not to listen. I hear they've made the boatswain their captain. A good choice. Not that it matters to me. Since that fateful morning, I've spent my days in my kingdom of sails and riggings. They leave me alone. I know that next time we reach port, they'll leave me behind. 
Sometimes I think I spot the mermaid's tail in the distance, reminder of unpaid debts. I promised Aisha I'd come back to her. I even meant it at the time. But I didn't. The lights of distant ports, Morocco, Alexandria, Algiers, kept calling me away. Neither war, nor storm, nor misfortune. Only the siren's call of one more journey, feeding off my soul's restlessness. When I did return, it was too late. Great is the shame of an unwed mother in our island. No future for sailors, whores and their bastards. Her bloated corpse, its hands still clutching the infant on its chest, had washed ashore beneath the Agios Nicholas Chapel, patron saint of sailors. Was our child stillborn, or did they drown together when she threw herself into the dirty harbour waters? Is the drowned corpse that visits me a man's corpse at all? I didn't know she was with child when I left. I swear I didn't. The dagger remained strapped on my belt. I suspect now that it carries no curse, but a purpose. Is there even a difference? Its purpose becomes a curse to the hands of those who choose it, to return to the one it belongs to, one kill at a time. But I have finally found my own purpose, the route I've avoided for much too long. When the drowned man returns, I will kiss him back. And then I'll return the dagger to its rightful owner and seek Aisha and my son beneath the waves. At last, I'm going home. That was Christine Lucas's The Drowned Man's Kiss, as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English, and most likely drinking a cup of tea right now. He has a scar on his arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children. And despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. His surname rhymes with Dopey, but any other similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. He is the Golden Pen winner of Writers of the Future, Volume 32, 2016, and his fiction out and forthcoming all over the place. You can keep up with it at mattdovey.com or follow along on Facebook and Twitter both as at Matt Dovey Writer. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. 
Reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help keep us on the charts so we can infect the ears of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we pull you back down into darkness with more Tales to Terrify. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 